Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director for Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. And today we are going to be listening in on a presentation from Reunion last week, which was presented by the Women's Leadership Initiative here at Albany Law School and its alumna trailblazers forging a path for women in law. And this presentation was actually hosted and moderated by our own President and Dean, Alicia Ouellette, but she was speaking with some of our most accomplished alums, including the Honorable Joanne M. Winslow, Class of 86, who's an Associate Justice, Appellate Division in the 4th Department, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, Class of 88, Founder and Executive Director of the Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation, and Maria Melendez, Class of 92, the Chief Diversity Officer at Sidley Austin LLP. More information about each of these really accomplished women is in the show notes for this, so make sure to check that out. That's enough from me. Let's get over and listen to the presentation. Welcome to today's program, everyone. Um, Alumni Trailblazers, Forging a Path for Women in the Law, presented by the Women's Leadership Initiative at Albany Law School. Today's panel is a webinar format and is being recorded. We'll save some time at the end of our panel for questions. Please feel free to use the Q&A function and the chat function, and our panelists will be happy to answer your questions. And now I have the distinct honor of introducing our moderator for today's program and our resident trailblazer, President and Dean Alicia Boulet. Thank you so much, Dean Fitzpatrick, and thank you all for being here. Thank you especially to our panelists, three women who have blazed paths in their respective careers after starting out right here at Albany Law School. I have no doubt that our conversation today will enlighten and inspire us. But before we get to our panelists and begin our discussion, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge yet another trailblazer, someone the world just lost the Honorable Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Like our panelists, Justice Ginsburg cleared paths for those who came before her, behind her. We all stand on her shoulders. Justice Ginsburg persevered even when questioned by her own law school dean as to why she dared to take a seat from a man who could do more with a law degree than she law firm partners who refused to give her a job despite being the first in her law school class, and judges who would not even consider her as a clerk simply because she was a woman. We stand on her shoulders. Justice Ginsburg showed us that it was possible to prioritize being a mother, a partner, and a brilliant professional, allowing each sphere her home life and her professional life to give respite and a sense of proportion to the other. We stand on her shoulders. Justice Ginsburg used a brilliant litigation strategy, exquisite writing, impeccable legal argument to forever change the legal landscape by convincing the courts to acknowledge that the United States Constitution prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. We stand on her shoulders. Justice Ginsburg worked tirelessly for what she believed was right. 
she had the utmost integrity, never wavering from her principles, even in the face of strong opposition. She gave up herself for something bigger, equality in our nation. She fought fiercely to advance her vision of equal justice for all people. And she did so while maintaining close relationships, even with those with whom she disagreed, always commanding the deep respect of her colleagues. We stand on her shoulders. And so while we mourn her passing, I ask that we hold a moment of silence to honor the life and the life work of the Honorable Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Thank you. And now it's my great pleasure uh, to, to uh, welcome our panelists. And I am a big believer, a firm believer in letting women speak for themselves. So rather than my giving their bios, I'm gonna ask each of our trailblazing panelists to introduce themselves and tell us some of the highlights from, from their careers. Can we start with you, Justice Winslow? Uh, I started my legal career at Albany Law School in 1983, which seems like a very long time ago now, and uh, spent my three years there. Uh, in 1986, after graduating, uh, I sat for the bar exam in, that summer in July, and in November, when I got my results, the day that I got my results, I called uh, the first assistant at the Monroe County District Attorney's Office, who I had met with back in May, um, and talked to him about working there. And he had said, if, if, you don't, if you haven't passed the bar, we can't really do much with you because we need you in court. So I got my results, and he said, can you be here tomorrow uh, in Rochester, New York, for a group interview? And I said, absolutely. And so I went the next day, having just found out I passed the New York State Bar on my first try. And I went to this group interview with, I don't know if it was 12 or 14 members of the administration at the DA's office. And I just had a blast. It was like I was in a boxing ring and I was saying, bring it on, you know, let me have it. I'm, I'm on cloud nine, I just passed the New York State Bar. And uh, fortunately, I, apparently I, in that mode, I did answer the questions as they would have liked. And they uh, made me an offer a few weeks later. And I started in January of 1987. And uh, 22 years later, uh, I finished my career there uh, after I had been elected to the New York State Supreme Court bench here in the 7th Judicial District. Um, I, once I went to the Supreme Court bench, after having spent 22 years in criminal law, I spent my first three years handling matrimonial cases, which uh, was an interesting way to learn a different area of the law. Uh, the best part about that was meeting an entirely different group of attorneys, because I really didn't have much contact with matrimonial attorneys in criminal law. And uh, then in um, 2017, I uh, was raised to the appellate division uh, by Governor Cuomo, and I have been sitting at the fourth department appellate division ever since. 
uh, and uh, it's not doing very good for uh, my my physical health in terms of movement. My my Fitbit is is sadly awful every day since taking this position, but it's it's in many ways reminds me of my days at Albany uh, because I am just learning more about the law all the time and enjoying it, immersing myself in it, and really having a wonderful experience. Thank you so much. Uh, Ms. Melendez. Hi, good afternoon, and uh, thank you, Dean, again, for the opportunity to join this uh, esteemed panel of fellow trailblazers. It's an honor uh, to be with you today. So I, uh, I, I started my undergrad at Syracuse University, graduate in 89 with a marketing degree, and my junior year of college, my uh, law and public policy professor pulled me aside and said, what are you doing with the rest of your life? And I said, I have absolutely no idea. Um, and she said to me, uh, Professor Let Callahan said to me, you should go to law school. And uh, long story short, of course I did. I went to Albany, graduated in 92. Uh, while I was at the firm, uh, while I was at, uh, at school, I clerked for the East Stuart Jones law firm for two years. And um, I thought that I had arrived. I was doing great work with a great law firm and thought that, um, you know, the, the the future was very, very bright. And uh, my second year, someone pulls me aside and says at the law school, is hey, Maria, what are you doing for your summer associate position? And you know, I, I'd done well in school. I was on law review. And I said, well, I'm working at the Jones firm. And you know, he, I love it there. It's do, you know, great stuff. And they looked at me and said, well, don't you want to go back to New York City, which is where I grew up? Um, and I said, yeah, but you know, after graduation, I'll go to New York City. I'll get a job there. And they're like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works you have to get a summer associate position at a law firm in the city if that's where you ultimately want to begin your legal career. And uh, I scrambled for a bit. Uh, by that point, it was October. And um, the only law firm that was accepting resumes at the time from Albany was the law firm of Breed, Abbott and Morgan. Uh, so I threw my name in and uh, got the interview. And long story short, I ended up as a summer associate at Breed, Abbott and Morgan was fantastic experience. They made an offer for me to join as a first year lawyer after graduation, which of course I did. Uh, and while I was there, uh, the partners I worked with in the commercial litigation group, that was my uh, practice area, uh, decided to move from Breed Out and Morgan to uh, what was then Brown and Wood, another major law firm in the city, uh, whose headquarters at the time were at the One World Trade Center. And again, as a one uh, first year lawyer, I, I, I'm first generation to graduate from high school, first generation to go to college, and of course, first generation to go to college. So I don't have a lot of people in my family or immediate friends who would advise me about whether or not moving from one firm to another was a good idea. So I just basically said, okay, I'll do that. Uh, sounds, sounds good. I like the Trade Center. Uh, it's near the water. It'll be great. Um, and I did that. And uh, I was at the firm, which is now uh, Sidley, and Aust Sidley Austin LLP. Brandon Wood merged with Sidley and Austin in 2001. Um, and uh, I was elected partner at the end of, uh, of 2001 and served as a partner from January 1 of 2002 through up until about a few months ago when uh, I decided that I was going to uh, entirely change my career and move from being a litigator at a major law firm, uh, 27 years now at that firm, to become the global chief diversity officer, which I did effective May 1 of this year. So in the uh, midst of a pandemic uh, and in the midst of 
perhaps the greatest racial and social justice movement in uh, modern history for sure. Uh, I am now um, not practicing law anymore. I am instead trying to help the firm and the legal profession continue to advance diversity and inclusion. Thank you. What a story and what a time to take on the new role. Yeah, it's been interesting to say the least. <laughs> uh, Ambassador Jenkins. Hi, inviting me. It's great to be here um, and to, it's, it's quite an honor to be called a trailblazer. So thank you for, for uh, reaching out to me. Um, let's see, from New York, I'm from the Bronx, New York, and um, I had graduated from Amherst College and two years off at a time when many students didn't do that. I think everyone in my college went directly to uh, grad school. And I was wanted to do. So I took a couple years off. And the one thing I did know is I wanted to work for the government. And uh, so I knew eventually I would get to Washington, DC. Um, I also worked in the New York City uh, government. And so I wanted to work in New York State government before I went down to Washington. So um, I applied to Albany and I applied to SUNY as well for a joint degree program. Uh, and so I got the joint degree program and I think I might've been the only person or maybe one other person, Max, who was in a joint degree SUNY Albany at the time. Um, and so I split my time between uh, the law school and SUNY. Uh, when I graduated, I did go down to Washington. I got something called a presidential management fellowship which allows one to go watch, go to Washington DC and work in a government office for a couple of years and then decide after doing, being allowed to bounce around government to figure out where they wanted to go. So I went down to Washington. I worked at the Office of Secretary of Defense. Um, and uh, while I was there, I went to a meeting and they were talking about strategic arms and strategic weapons. And I fell in love with the issue of weapons of mass destruction. So I went to an agency called the Arms Control Disarmament Agency where I was and I was representing US ambassadors and delegations negotiating uh, chemical, biological, nuclear weapons treaties overseas. Um, and I did that for uh, a few years. And during the time I also got my master's in law um, because I, was, I hadn't taken a single class in international law. And I think there was only one class offered at the time. So I went back and got a master's in international law. Um, then I left uh, to work on a few congressional commissions. And um, I decided that I wanted to get a PhD. So I went down to University of Virginia and got a, uh, worked on the classwork for a PhD on international relations and not in international uh, law, international relations, because so much of what I was doing was policy. Um, so I did the classwork, went up to Belfort Center at Harvard to actually do the actual research and writing for the dissertation. Um, then I think about what I wanted to do. I, I figured one thing I was thinking about was working at a foundation. So I got a job at the Ford Foundation in New York, where I was U.S. Foreign, I was a program officer for U.S. Foreign and Security Policy. Um, during that time, I also worked on a couple of other commissions, one being the 9-11 Commission. And then I, while I was at Ford, I got a call to join the Obama administration. So I decided to do that. And I worked for, from, from 2009 to 2017 as ambassador. Um, and I was a special 
and my portfolio was uh, working on programs within the U.S. government internationally on uh, that prevent weapons of mass destruction, making sure that people with bad intent don't get their hands on means to develop a chemical, biological, nuclear weapon. Uh, did that for eight years, and I left in 2017. And since then, I have been, I worked at the, uh, I have a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings Institution in Washington. I've, I've done some uh, teaching, uh, teach at Georgetown uh, School of Foreign Service and George Washington School of International Relations. Um, I am also, I also started my own organization called Women of Color Advance in Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation, which focuses on diversifying uh, peace and security, foreign policy, national security issues, and foreign pol and, and policy making, not only within the U.S. government, but in the different institutions that promote policy change. So that's what I do now. I'm pretty much running the organization. I teach, um, and I also work, uh, do some work with Brookings Institution. So thank Thank you. I, uh, it's incredible. I've, I've never heard anyone say that they fell in love with mass weapons of mass destruction before. Uh, but but what a what a, a, an amazing path you made out of that that passion. And I don't know how you sleep at night with all that you know. But uh, thank you all, all three of you, for for being here. And some of what you talked about was a little relatable to some of the students who are on the line. Um, I'm gonna ask you to go back in time and think about when you were at Albany Law School. What were your most memorable uh, experiences during your time at law school? And uh, Ambassador Jenkins, you've got the big screen, so why don't you start? Um, thanks for, for that question. Um, and, and as I think about that, I mean, you know, I don't know if I could say any, I mean, there were, there were classes that I really liked. I really liked property, which I was not one of, not a person who, not a lot of people liked property, but I thought property was amazing. I liked um, criminal law courses. I liked the um, business law. And I was particularly interested in conflicts. And maybe that's a little bit of my, I should have realized then my passion for international law because I liked conflicts. But actually one of my memorable experiences actually studying for the bar exam, you know, which is not what most people would probably say, but I thought that was a, a time when I felt people were coming together. I got to know different people who I did not really spend much time with in all three years. I got to know them better. Um, of course, the class I graduated with was not the class I came in with because I was there for four years for the joint program. So I got to know different people and there was a camaraderie and a, a, a sense of shared misery um, with the bar exam that made me, that I really actually enjoyed at a time when most people probably don't, I enjoyed that experience of being with everyone, getting to know people, being together, studying together, actually. <laughs> I love that. And I love that in part because we're going through some of that right now, right? We're in a pandemic instead of being in our beautiful DAMC, here we are on Zoom and, and our students who are studying for the bar, the, uh, you may or may not know that the, the um, the July bar was pushed to October. So they are still in that, that sense of shared misery trying to get through it. So that's, that's, a, that's a great story. Uh, Justice Winslow, how about you? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, well, my, uh, my start there was uh, pretty scary, I would say, in looking back on it. Uh, I'll, I'll begin by saying that when I uh, graduated from college, I was a magnum cum laude graduate 
from uh, my college. So I thought that once I was accepted into law school that it was pretty much gonna be smooth sailing, but uh, that was not really the case for me. Uh, after first semester, uh, and after taking three exams first semester, uh, I had done nothing but study. I had no social life. I had done nothing but study. I was confident. I knew everything there was to know about all of the topics that I was going to be examined on. And maybe I did, but what I didn't realize and what I didn't take to heart was focus and focusing on uh, the issue uh, and what were the most important issues uh, it, within the question. And so instead, as I said about taking my first year exam, my first semester exams, I tried to write down everything I knew about every topic. And as a result, I didn't finish the questions. You know, there may have been three questions and I finished two or two and a half. And I left thinking, well, that'll be okay because they're gonna be so impressed at how much I knew about everything that they did ask. And uh, the bottom line was that's not the case. They weren't impressed one bit. And at the end of first semester, I was on academic pro probation because I had attained two C's and a D on my exams because I hadn't finished the questions. Uh, so then I went into second semester terrified, having always succeeded in school and never having had C's or T's. And also, you know, this was a big deal. I was paying for law school by myself. I, I came from very simple beginnings and, uh, you know, there was a lot on the line for me, uh, separate apart from, you know, my ego in terms of my ability to, to you know, attain scholastic success. So I managed to uh, keep my blood pressure in check and uh, took the exam second semester, did much better, did very well, you know, never had that issue again because I, I learned that I needed to focus and not try to impress people with my answers, but just answer the darn question. Uh, and uh, something else happened that first year though, which is something that really stuck with me. Uh, at that time, the criminal law professor was Frank Anderson, and Frank Anderson was affectionately known by those of us in our first year as the guardian of the gates. Uh, and we thought that because uh, you know, a lot of people uh, didn't do as well in his class as they thought they might have. Uh, but he needed a new law assistant, and uh, so he was looking for someone uh, to be employed by him, and he, his manner of getting you to be employed was to have you write an essay. You know, you might think that, you know, I was a little bit burned from getting too close to that fire, but I was undaunted and I decided, you know what, I'd really like to work in, in criminal law. That was kind of where my heart was already. And uh, I decided to go ahead and write the essay. So I wrote the essay and then all of a sudden I, I got this message to go see him in his office, which was daunting. But I went and saw him and he sat me down and he proceeded to tell me that of all the people who had applied, I had written the best essay. Um, but that because of my grades, he wasn't going to hire me, <laughs> which I can understand, uh, fully understand. Uh, maybe it was out of concern that I would continue to do well in school, that uh, I wasn't working for him. But uh, the bottom line is it, it just made me much more stronger in my commitment to work hard and to make sure that I succeeded. And uh, that was a lesson that, that put me in very good stead for the rest of my career. Well, thank then you. I had... I had two other really good experiences there, which I probably should mention. Uh, one, uh, both during my senior year, actually, during you know, my second year, I did work outside of, of, of the school. And uh, besides working, I mostly had to work on my, my uh, studies. But during my senior year, I decided it was time to really uh, branch out and get some practical, at least in my mind, practical experience. And I took part in the uh, Craven International Con uh, Constitutional Law Competition. And we went, we were quarterfinalists. We didn't win, but we were quarterfinalists. We went to North Carolina. 
that was an interesting experience of in and of itself. Uh, the, the highest moment of my panic was once we'd landed in North Carolina. It was, um, and we stopped at like an AM PM kind of store to get a snack or something. And when I went to the checkout, I'd picked up a yogurt. And when I went to the checkout, the uh, clerk at the checkout said to me, y'all want spoon? And I freaked out because I had no idea what she had just said to me. And I turned to my, my teammates and I said, how are we going to answer questions if we can't understand the accent? And so then, you know, by the time we got to the school, I laughed at how silly I was being and was glad that she'd asked me if I wanted a spoon or not, because I wasn't going to be able to eat that yogurt otherwise. And then the, the other thing that happened senior year, which really made a difference in my career, was my participation in uh, senior prize trials, the mock, mock trial uh, courtroom competition. And uh, for a variety of reasons, that really uh, put me in the direction of where I was going to be in my career. It told me that my passion was in a courtroom. It told me that I was good at it. And, uh, and it gave me the confidence to want to be an assistant district attorney. And uh, my, I went through the finals, but in my quarterfinal round, Dean Bartlett, who was the dean of the school at that time, uh, was actually our judge and took us out afterwards. And he was instrumental in helping me get my first job because he uh, asked me what I wanted to do. Did I have a job yet? I said, no, I don't have a job yet. And uh, he said, what do you want to do? And I told him I wanted to be a DA. And he said, well, have you applied? And I explained to him that I'd met with the first assistant. He told me I'd have to wait till I was admitted. And he says, well, Howard Rellins, the DA out there in Monroe County. I happen to know him. Would you like me to you know, put in a good word for you? I said, uh, yeah. And so he did. And I'm sure that didn't hurt him. Nice. The Albany Law community. And I, lo I love that you shared that you started um, with a little bit of a rocky start, but persisted. <laughs> Very nice. This is important. Ms. Melendez, how about Albany Law School memories for you? You know, it's, uh, uh, as I'm listening to uh, Ambassador Jenkins and Judge Winslow, I, you know, a lot of what they said, I, I would echo. I mean, I, I just, I enjoyed my time uh, I enjoyed my class. I loved property class. That was probably one of my favorites. Um, and my torts class, which um, I, I'm having a senior moment. I can't remember the name of the professor at the time, but he, he always wore open toe shoes. So if I say that- Diamond. Yes, that's it. That's it. That's it. Uh, Everyone. He was, he was something else. And uh, I really enjoyed his class. Um, and then, uh, it, it, most of all, I enjoyed the people, right? I mean, I think the students, uh, you know, it wasn't a cutthroat place and people helping each other, supporting each other. Um, and uh, those are, yeah, and, and being in the courtyard for happy hours, that was the other thing I remember uh, very fondly. So, yeah. Great. Uh, yeah, those TGIFs in the courtyard are... are... Yes. Uh, and, and being in, in our new remote state, um, uh, we're having less of the gatherings, but we'll get back to it. So thank you. Thank you all for sharing those. Um, thinking about how, how you uh, approach problems or, or um, get turned on to do all these things and, and um, uh, take on the challenges that you've taken on, I, I wonder uh, what ignites your sense of fairness and how has that motivated you in your career? Uh, and I'll, uh, Ms. Melinda, since you're in the big square, I'll let you, you start. Um, I think fundamentally what drives me is wanting to make sure that everyone has a fair and equal opportunity, right? You're going to rise or fall on your merit. Everyone understands that. Um, but 
not everyone has access to those opportunities. So I think, um, you know, for me, I, I, uh, I made partners, I mentioned in 2001, and um, in 2003, I got a phone call from a Puerto Rican Bar Association. Oh, congratulations, Maria, we're going to give you this award. And I was so excited because it was my first, you know, professional award. And I was so excited. I, I hung up the phone and, and then I called them back and I said, you know, why are you giving me this award? And they said, oh, you're great. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know all that, but why are you giving me this award? And they said, um, you know, you are one of, at the time, you know, a handful of partners at a major law firm of Hispanic Latino descent. Uh, Latinas in particular. And I said, that, that can't possibly be. I'm in the middle of New York City. There are tons of big law firms here. That's impossible. And so I hung up and did some research. Long story short, it was in fact the case back in 2003. And regrettably, it continues to be the case. And um, up until that point, I really wasn't particularly conscious of the fact that I was Latina or a female in, in the legal profession. I just, you know, I, I did my work. I did it as best I could. And um, uh, it wasn't until 2003 when I started looking around and, and thinking more deeply about why is it that there aren't more women in the firm partnership? Why is it that there aren't more um, people of color at the firm partnership? What, you know, what's going on? And, and um, you know, fast forward almost 20 years later, I think part of the problem, uh, and this is true across the profession, right? In the judiciary and in corporate in-house law departments and academia, uh, the lack of women and, and, um, and people of diverse backgrounds in, in senior roles is primarily, in my opinion, is due to a lack of access to opportunities that will allow you to grow and develop and, and become your best self. And so for me, that's what drives me. That's what the sense of fairness that, that, that fuels me. And is, is that part of what motivated this most recent change? Uh, in yes. Your, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. To a large degree, you know, I was at a point in my career, I've been practicing for almost uh, 27 years at the time. Uh, my personal life, I have two uh, uh, boys, 22 and 19, who are in college now. And um, I had that big, uh, awful 5-0 thing uh, happened uh, a year or two earlier. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a point in time where, you know, I wanted to kind of do more in the space to help advance diversity in the profession. And, the, and, and our current CDO at the time announced that she was retiring uh, effective May 1 of 2020. And that also kind of just kind of sealed the deal for me. That's such important work. I'm so glad you're doing it. Thank you. Ambassador Jenkins, how about you? What, what ignites your sense of fairness? Um, I guess what ignites my sense of fairness is the concept that by, by having fairness, you can actually have a much better result of whatever you're trying to do. Um, to me, being fair means um, being open and being willing to give everyone an equal voice um, and recognizing that by doing that, you're not only um, creating a sense of belonging and connection with, with people, but you also are making a better situation for everyone. Um, and, you know, some of the work that my organization does is focusing on that very point of, you know, making sure that, you know, whatever is being considered or decided um, does have that uh, representation and that sense of fairness that everyone has an equal opportunity to, 
to voice their thoughts and, and voice their opinions, but also that, um, you know, everyone comes with their own, um, their own history, their own subcultures, um, and being fair means saying that what you have to say is just as important what anyone else has to say. Um, so basically, underst understanding that by the fairness not only enriches, the, enriches individuals, but also enriches the results. That's great. It's really important. Uh, Justice Winslow. Uh, you know, this question uh, is something that I think about fairly often. Um, I'm not sure what it is that started it for me, but fairness was re really always something that was central for me. Um, you know, when I was younger, I was very involved in sports and fairness certainly mattered there. Uh, but I also grew up as an LGBTQ person in the 70s. And I think that that really uh, sent home for me the, the need for fairness. Um, and I, I can't say that I was uh, treated poorly to my face. Uh, I'm sure many things over the years were said behind my back, uh, and I, even though I didn't hear them, obviously that still added to uh, the, the conversation and the tone of things in, in the world that we live in. Uh, but certainly, anytime I saw anything that I thought wasn't fair, I think that's part of why I wanted to do the job I ended up doing for two decades, was because I felt like I could make a difference from the inside. You know, and I thought going to work in the government as a, as a district attorney put me on the inside, gave me a lot of control and power and uh, a lot of um, really discretion, which I thought uh, made a difference. But the interesting thing for me is the times where my sense of fairness, where I needed courage to carry out my sense of fairness, were times where it felt like there was going to be um, a price that I might pay because I stood up. Um, just a, a quick example, one time uh, while I was at the DA's office, some of the members of the office were hazing a younger member of the office. And it wasn't something I knew about ahead of time, but as it was happening, a buzz started going through the office and I, I found out about it and I, you know, it offended me and I immediately went to the highest ranking person that was in the office, it probably was a Friday afternoon, and uh, saw to it that it got stopped. And that could have really had some blowback for me personally, uh, because I was the one that was en ending their fun. Uh, but it just, you know, it offended me so, so strongly that I, I just, I mean, I didn't walk through the door and stop it because I didn't think that that was really going to put an end to it going forward. Instead, I got the highest ranking member of the office, which was what was going to cause blowback for me because I, I wasn't just stopping it myself. Uh, who might have been considered a peer, but it was someone who was much higher up in the office who was going to be stopping it and therefore have knowledge of it. Uh, but I just felt it deserved that. So that's what I did. Was there blowback? Uh, not to my face, <laughs> but I'm sure that uh, for a while I wasn't the favorite person. Sure. Ambassador Jenkins, let me, let me ask you the courage question. Has there been times in your career when you needed courage? Oh, plenty of times. Um, there were, you know, in my, in the field that I, I, I was in, um, I'm still in actually, um, I was often, as you could, as you might imagine, um, it's a very male dominated field and it's a field that does not have many people of color. So, um, which I didn't think about when I got into it, I just wanted to do it. <laughs> I didn't think about the challenges cause I was just so excited. Um, but after I got into it, I realized 
uh, the lack of diversity. And so there were a lot of times when I had to have courage, particularly since I was a lawyer for the ambassador and for the delegation. I was also probably one of the youngest people on the delegation. Um, but I was also the lawyer. So I, I had to, you know, I had to step up quite often to, you know, to give advice, but also to, um, you know, draft text and, you know, you know, prepare witnesses for, for testimony, for advice and consent. Um, so there were a lot of times when I, I had to have courage. I did, I was not in a position where I could, you know, shy away and say, oh, I have imposter syndrome or, oh, I don't think I can do this. I, I didn't have that, that luxury. And it's actually a good thing that I, I didn't because I was forced to actually put the courage, put the, any nervousness aside and step forward and do the job. So it took a lot of courage to do it. Um, it got easier, of course, the, the more I did it. Um, it's still very, I mean, the field is still very male dominated and still does not have very many people of color. It has more women now than back then, but um, still certainly not enough. So the courage still is there. You still have to do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think those were some of the times when I had to have the most courage. And so when you had those moments, uh, especially early, how did you get through them? How did you talk yourself into to doing what needed to be done? Uh, I essentially talked myself into it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were times that I mean, I would just kind of, you know, take a moment, you know, take, let me take a moment and just kind of think and deal with this and move on because they were expecting an answer. And I, you know, it's like, okay, I got to focus on the issue. I don't have time to focus on being the only woman, being the only person of color, being the youngest person on the day, I had to do the job. And, um, you know, like I said, being forced into a situation where I didn't, I, I didn't have the, the time to think and get into the whole head thing about, you know, the, you know, it's a, it's, I didn't have time to get into the whole issue about, you know, you know, imposter syndrome, which a lot of times is just a head game anyway. That's all it is. You know, you get used to dealing with it and you realize, why am I wasting time thinking about all this, all these reasons why I shouldn't be here? I need to, I need to focus on the job. I don't, that takes away energy from what I need to get done. And so when I started to realize that, then I stopped, I stopped playing, letting, letting culture play these games with my head. And I just started to do the work. Gotten focused. It's, it's such, it's such a hard thing to do, but it's so important, right? And I, I'm thinking of some of our, our bar takers who are, are uh, watching right now and thinking they can't do it. They can do it. They can do what you talked about. Talk, talk exactly. yourself into it. It's, exactly. it's part, part of moving forward. Mm -hmm. Ms. Melendez, courage. How has that played out for you? Uh, in, a, in a couple ways, uh, not unlike what has been described already, um, I think what I will add to, um, to what has been said already is um, it's the courage to speak up for yourself, right? I mean, um, for me, um, I did go through that imposter syndrome. I did sort of look around and, you know, I was at a white shoe law firm, uh, this little girl from, you know, born, born in Brooklyn, um, born in Puerto Rico, raised in Brooklyn, um, and looking around, and there were not a lot of women, and there were not a lot of people of color. So yeah, that seeps into your head, and and it sometimes can distract you from what you need to do. So that was part of the the courage thing. And then as I became more senior, and even when I became a partner, having the courage to ask for what I thought I was um, I had earned, right? Whether it be compensation, whether it be um, client relationships, whether it be um, you know, new matters, new, new uh, litigation, new cases, wh whatever they may be, 
Um, and, and then also for leadership opportunities, right? You have to raise your hand and you have to um, you know, advocate for yourself. And for me, that's something that I learned later in my career. And I, looking back, I wish I had learned that lesson sooner. Um, because uh, it doesn't always, you know, the mindset of I'll do the work, I'll be great at it, and the rewards will come, um, that doesn't necessarily uh, always happen. And so you have to be proactive about managing your career and, and having the courage to raise your hand and say, you know, I want to be considered for X, Y, or Z. Um, so that, that would be what I would add to what has already been said. Well, I think that's a really important point is, is sort of having that faith in yourself and that willingness to say, I want to take this chance. I want to take this risk. I want to lead. Um, and I do think that that can be very challenging, particularly for women. Uh, and, and there's some literature that, that shows that. Uh, but it's how we get ahead, because if we wait, it's not going to happen. Right. Um, so very, I think it's a great point. So um, thinking back to your younger selves, now that you, you have um, achieved um, some maturity and wisdom, what advice would you give your younger self? I, uh, uh, picking up on what I just said, you know, um, how important it is to build your network and to do that early in your career, do it in law school, right? I mean, the, the, um, the colleagues that you're sitting next to and starting for the bar with, um, 10 years from now, who knows where they're gonna be? Um, five years from now, 20 years from now, you know, 30 years from now, um, the professors that you're interacting with, the administrators that you're interacting, uh, interacting with, they can become incredible sources of information, um, opportunities, um, and you, in turn, uh, we, you pay it forward, right? Because building relationships is a two-way street and, and, and knowing that and understanding that and appreciating how valuable, uh, you know, strong networks can be uh, is just an incredibly important lesson that I wish I had known, again, earlier in my career that I've known, that I, that I have learned since. Um, it's incredibly valuable. So, so stay in touch with your, your, your fellow students, um, stay in touch with your professors, stay in touch with the administrators, um, stay in touch with the school. Um, and I think a lot of really good things will come from that. Is there, let me do a follow up with you on, on that. Is, is there a, a network or a person that you met through a networking event that has actually made a difference for you, that, an example that you could share? Um, countless, uh, you know, I, I, client relationships, you know, as a junior partner at a major law firm, uh, you know, I, as an associate and senior associate, you're doing great. Everybody loves you and you're, you got more work than you can possibly handle, imagine. And then you, congratulations, you become partner. Uh, life is great. You want things, right? And, but then you're a partner and it's like, okay, wait, where did all the business go, right? Where are all the opportunities for me to continue having the amazing work that um, was being supplied to me as an associate, right? So as a partner, your, your responsibilities um, change dramatically and um, having those uh, connections to clients. So as you're an associate, you're getting to know the clients, uh, the, your counterparts at the in, at the client, you're getting to know your counterparts and, uh, you know, opposing counsel, or if you're on a deal team, a transactional matter, you're getting to know the, the lawyers representing the other parties and building those relation, relationships. You, you learn about potential job opportunities. You learn about potential 
uh, new matters, new deals, new cases, what have you. Uh, and that's been, you know, for me, you know, my book of business, if you will, uh, began to grow through my network of client relationships that I developed um, as a senior associate and junior partner. Thank you. I think it's, we often say you need to network. So having that, that concrete example, I think is, is really helpful. Yeah. Uh, Justice Winslow, you're, you're speaking to young, young Joanne Winslow. What, what are you going to advise? Don't try to tell people at the, your first year of uh, semester and everything that you know. No. Um, I would say, you know, there's not much I would change. There really isn't. Uh, but I guess I would say uh, be more confident and savor the moments. You know, really take in where you are and what you've done as you go along. Because uh, I, I think that, you know, I'm beginning to do that now and I wish I had done it over the years. You know, I don't know that it would have changed anything, but um, I, I just think it's not something you should wait on. That's good, good advice. Ambassador. Yeah, I mean, uh, my answer is actually gonna be very similar. Um, I've always been one of these people that are just always, um, you know, moving fast and trying to get the next thing and, uh, okay, you know, what's the next challenge um, and you know, because I, you know, I, I, I know that I get, I get bored quickly. And when I get, when I start getting bored, my mind starts to wander and it's okay, what, what, what should I, what do I need to do now? And, you know, I think that I would like to, um, I would tell myself to, to, to slow down and smell the roses a little more and enjoy what you've achieved a little more before you're looking for that next challenge. Um, you know, and I, you know, I mean, I, even now with my, with my organization, I, times when I need to sit back and just enjoy um, some of the things that are happening with it. So I would, I mean, so obviously I haven't changed enough, but I would, I would certainly say that um, as you go through life, enjoy what you're doing and just sit back and say, this is nice. This is good. Let's just relax and enjoy it for a while. You know, take it in. I've worked hard to get this. Now, now that I've gotten it, Let's enjoy it for a while before we start looking for the next thing. Um, and, uh, and in addition, and, and going along with that, um, something that, that Maria also said is enjoying the people around you more, you know, and not leaving and, and staying in contact. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time and COVID has given me a lot of opportunity to reach back and find friends, but um, I wish I had, held on to them more at the time there's a lot of years that i missed with them so um yeah i think that i would definitely say that to myself very nice i love that you both both of you talked about sort of that slowing down being mindful being in the moment and and then the sharing of the the people and the networking um good advice for all of us so I'm, I'm gonna ask each of you to, it's gonna be a little bit of an interview question. Um, best thing, worst thing. So uh, in thinking about your careers, what, what's the thing that you're most proud of um, and why? And then what, can you describe a failure and what happened and how you got through it? Um, and Ambassador, you're in the big square. So do you mind going first on that one? Uh, what am I most proud of? Um... You know, I, I guess there's a couple, I don't know if I could say one, there are a couple of things. I mean, what I'm doing right now with my organization, I'm very, I'm very proud of this because when I started it, I didn't know what would happen. 
and there weren't a lot of organizations like the one I have, like an NGO. Um, so it was, it was a, I felt like a shot in the dark and I really, and talk about courage. I mean, I mean, I think this is not one of those times where you just kind of do something and you're just not sure, but you believe in it. And so you just kind of hope it works. And yesterday was our three-year anniversary. So we had some celebrations for the anniversary of the organization and it's, it's grown. We have, you know, over, you know, over, you know, two, a thousand members. We have uh, five chapters around the world. We have all, I mean, it's just been amazing. So I think that probably also, uh, you know, the, the years I worked as a, the things I was able to do as an ambassador, probably the things most proud of. My failure, um, I never stuck with my languages long enough. You know, I mean, I, I learned a lot of French and then I didn't stick with it and I didn't practice it. And so I lost it. I learned Russian for a while and I didn't stick with it um, because probably because my lifestyle was one where I just wasn't stationary long enough. Um, so I think, I don't like to think in terms of, um, it's not so much a failure as much as um, a disappointment. Yeah, a regret, yeah. A regret, I wish that I had um, been able to do. Now, now, you know, I was able to work in diplomacy for, you know, since the early 90s um, without another language, uh, but I would have liked to know one. You've certainly accomplished a lot. So there's still time in COVID, especially. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Take up the French. Uh, Justice Winslow. Oh, what am I most proud of? Pride is not something that uh, I'm really good at, you know, or, or complimenting myself or anything like that. It's not. It's not something uh, I was. Wasn't ever part of my household growing up. It wasn't part of. Uh, what we were able to give voice to. So it's still something I, I struggle with. But uh, I guess what I would say I'm most proud of is having been elected as a Supreme Court Justice uh, in a decidedly Republican district. Uh, I certainly had the benefit of having worked in a field where I was well known uh, because I'd handled a lot, some many high profile cases while at the DA's office. Uh, I certainly had uh, the benefit of running in 2008 on a ticket with Barack Obama, uh, and even in a Republican district, that was a good thing. Uh, but I, I also had worked really hard and had a good reputation, and uh, you know, I, so I'm proud that I was able to achieve that. But maybe even more proud of the things that that has allowed me to do since then. Um, you know, one of the things that it's allowed me to do is to have the job that I now have, which I'm really very much enjoying. Although that's also related to one of my great failures, which I'll get to in just a moment. Uh, and also really proud uh, that it, I think it put me in a good position to be selected uh, by uh, Chief Judge Janet DeFiori as the co-chair of the Richard C. Fiala uh, Commission uh, dedicated to ensuring justice uh, for uh, all LGBTQ persons, whether they be employees or users of our court system. And um, that's really, that's really been important for me to be able to begin to do more because I think, you know, when we talked about being trailblazers, I can kind of consider myself an accidental trailblazer. It wasn't something I set out to do. It wasn't something that I necessarily was really cognizant about as it was happening. You know, when I was at the DA's office, I was the first of many things. You know, I, I was the first 
chief of many bureaus. I was the first uh, woman to go to homicide scenes. I was the first, you know, many things that I did there, I was the first of. And it, at the time that it was happening, that really wasn't of great moment to me. It wasn't something I thought about. I was focused on my work and, and you know, what I was doing. Um, but I'm really proud that because I took the risk, and it was a risk, first as a Democrat, and it was also a risk as an LGBTQ person. Um, and I was pretty scared that that was going to become an issue in, in the election, which it were did. You, were you out at the time? You know, define out. You know, did everybody at the DA's office know? Absolutely. Did everybody that worked in criminal law, you know, know? Absolutely. Uh, were there other politicians who knew? I still remember, I won't name him, but a politician who ended up being elected, uh, who then ended up, uh, after he was elected, leaving under some really scurrilous um, allegations and things of that nature, who had leaned over to me at, at, a, at a campaign uh, dinner and said, you know, you don't think you're going to be going down to the southern part of this district, do you? Because they're not going to really like you much there. You know, just, you know, scratch your head, mind-boggling things that would happen. Uh, but in terms of it, you know, it ever becoming an in-my-face issue, no, it, it didn't. You know, it was really my work was the issue, which is what it should be. Now, failure really is uh, more of a personal level. I mean, there were a few trials that bothered me that I spent, you know, probably weeks going through in my mind, trying to figure out if there's something I could have done different. Uh, but there are only a couple uh, that went sour on me that I really felt strongly about uh, because of how badly the victims in the cases, I, I felt for them. Um, one case involved a, a woman who was a, a prostitute drug addict. And uh, she, this man did horrible things to her, absolutely horrible things. And at the trial, he uh, brought in his daughter to testify uh, on his behalf and basically help him uh, with a sort of an alibi. And she was a civilian employee of the police department, so that gave her automatic credibility. And there really wasn't anything I could do about that or with that, because I, I think really what happened was it was a lie that was put you know, on the jury and they didn't have much that they could do with it. It, it meant there wasn't proof beyond a reasonable doubt when they placed you know, the daughter's credibility versus my victim who didn't come in the courtroom with much credibility. But the things that happened to her were atrocious. And it really bothered me that, you know, that, that I couldn't get the jury to understand what really had happened. And, um, but that's not really the kind of thing that I'm focused on right now when I'm talking about failure, because I think I don't have, I've never been really good at work-life balance. You know, I've always worked way too much. And, uh, you know, as a result, my weight has skyrocketed up and down over the years and I struggle with it. And COVID has made it worse than ever because between COVID and my current job, I sit way too many hours a day. It's affecting, you know, my neck, my back, my waistline. Um, and I need to get better at that because that's going to affect what I'm able to do in addition to my general health. So that's my failure. Have you learned anything from those failures? Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I know in my head that if I take the time out to work first thing in the morning, I'm gonna have a more productive day, but for some reason I'm drawn to get down there and do the work that I know I need to do. And I, and I don't seem to force myself to, to go you know, ride my bike or you know, go for a walk or my knees won't let me run anymore, so that's not gonna happen. But to do something to ensure that you know, my health is gonna be good and that my mind is gonna be sharp. Um, for some reason, I just, you know, it's not that I'm lazy, I'm not a lazy person, but 
I just, you know, I get drawn. I, I think about what I need to do X, Y, and Z, and I just want to go do X, Y, and Z. It's a stronger draw. It's like right. it's a drug, really, for me. It's like an addiction. It's a. Uh, it, it, we all have struggles. It's a, we're all a work in progress, right? <laughs> yes. Even even when you reach sort of the pinnacle and you're doing really well on one thing, there's there's all all, all that. Uh-huh. But it's, it's not the worst addiction to have. No. <laughs> Ms. Melendez. Um, so my personal life, the, the thing, uh, what I'm most proud of are my two sons. Um, uh, one will be graduating in uh, December um, from Purdue University, and he's an uh, Army ROTC kid, so he'll be commissioning as a second lieutenant in, in the Army. And, um, he wants to go infantry and, and, you know, jump out of airplanes, which I'm not too excited about. I, I said to him, you know, the Pentagon has nice little rooms and you can sit there and analyze data or, you know, be a cybersecurity specialist or something, but he wants to jump out of airplanes. Um, my youngest is, uh, he's a sophomore at Ohio State and uh, I'm convinced he's, he's the smartest person I know. Uh, and is probably likely to, you know, discover the cure for cancer. That's how um, smart a kid he is. So I'm very proud of them. Uh, professionally, I am proud of the fact that, you know, I, I was elected partner at a, you know, one of the top five or six law firms in the world. Um, I'm very proud of that. Uh, I was the first um, uh, associate uh, of Hispanic descent, female associate of Hispanic descent to be elected partner for what was then Brown and Wood at the time. So that makes it extra special for me um, and for my, my family. Um, in terms of my failures, um, as I mentioned, I'm a litigator. Uh, I was a litigator. I don't practice anymore. Uh, I, I lost a case, an arbitration matter, very, fairly straightforward breach of contract uh, arbitration matter early on, um, probably the first year actually that I had uh, become a partner in 2002. And, um, you know, as Judge Winslow said, you, you sort of think through, well, gee, could I have done something different? Um, but I, I beat myself up over it for years. And, and, and largely looking back, the reason why I beat myself myself up was because I thought, you know, I looked around and I, I was among giants and, and I never heard anyone talking about how they lost a case or they lost a motion or, you know, everyone always sort of did their laps, right? And when, when something big happened, they did their laps and, and, and pounded their chest. And, and, you know, here I am, I'm like, wow, I, this is my first solo uh, trial and, and, I, and I lost. And what I realized, you know, 10 years later, and among the reasons why I call it a failure is that um, you know, these guys walking around, mostly guys, uh, walking around pounding their chests about all the great things that they, they never talked about their failures and come to find out there were plenty of those too, you know, and, um, uh, and, and to this day, I, I, I stopped practicing and unless I begin practicing again and, and lose another one, that was my only loss in, in my almost 27 year career. Uh, so, so I beat myself up for something that um, I shouldn't have because it's perfectly normal and natural and I did so because I really didn't know how the, you know, how the game was played, if you will. Um, so that was a lesson that I learned and uh, have come to appreciate. Um, so my failure have turned into hopefully something positive. Yeah, it's, I, it's interesting. It's, I think it's so important for all of us as we support each other. Um, as emerging professionals or even top, top of our career professionals to admit 
that we're not perfect, right? And that, yeah. that we um, do have these losses and these insecurities and these things that we're working on or regrets uh, in our lives. Uh, and, and being able to put the, that out there can allow us to, to sort of move, move past them, beyond them. Uh, and so I think that's a great lesson. Uh, Maria, can I ask, um, with your, your kids, uh, clearly a, a point of pride, um, you were working in big law. How did you make it work? How did you balance? And, and was there balance or were there moments of balance? There's no balance. Uh, and in fact, um, again, when I was a, I, I had my first son when I was a fifth or sixth year associate at the firm, uh, my oldest son. And um, when I came back, the, the firm has uh, used to bring in various different speakers as, as many organizations do. And, and one time we had Judge Preska from the Southern District of New York who since became the chief judge. Um, and she was asked that question about work-life balance and how did she make it all happen. And she shared a story with the audience which um, was extremely liberating for me. She said she and Justice Ginsburg, um, may she rest in peace, uh, would chat about that. And Justice Ginsburg would say, look, I would, you know, take care of stuff in the morning and, and in the afternoon and take care of the kids and, and um, do the cooking, et cetera, whatever you in the evening, and then put them to bed. And I would sit in my kitchen table um, and take care of whatever else remained. And she said, she, Justice Ginsburg advised Judge Preska that you have to let go of the guilt. You can't be uh, someone in that kind of uh, professional world with children and a family and feeling guilty when you're at home taking care of the kids and then feeling guilty when you're at the office uh, or the court or where, wherever you may be um, and, and throw away the word balance from your vocabulary because there really is no such thing. It's more of a pendulum sometimes. Sometimes it's more of a roller coaster. Um, and at the end of the day, you know what? You're doing the best you can. Accept that, embrace that, own that. Um, and, you know, hope for the best. And, and um, you know, my, my husband is incredibly supportive. He has been my, you know, partner, true partner in, along the way. Uh, and I think if you have that and uh, you have a supporting, you know, the, the organization or institution that you work with or for is supportive of working parents, then, um, you know, that's, that's it. And, and get rid of the guilt. That was, that was words from Justice Ginsburg. Um, and, and I've lived by them ever since. That was in the early, uh, in the late 1990s, so. That's great, great advice. Um, thank you for that. I, we have a question from the audience um, and, and uh, folks in the audience, if you wanna add questions to the Q&A, uh, we're happy to, to take them. Uh, but we, the question that we have is, who are the panelists' role models and why? Anyone wanna volunteer to start? I, I uh, Justice Ginsburg, um, she, you know, again, I, I never, I actually, I did meet her once uh, when I was sworn into the Supreme Court. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet her pre my swearing in and I brought my family and my boys had an opportunity to meet them as, uh, meet her as well. Um, I have always, because of what she stood for and what she represented, um, she has been a, a hero to me and a, and a guiding light of, of sorts. Uh, my sons, as I mentioned, they are my heroes. I, you know, between the two of them, they keep me in line, they keep me straight, they keep me open-minded and, and uh, um, you know, thoughtful uh, about others' opinions as well. Um, sometimes I get 
you know, dug into one position or another, and, and they're always around to kick me in the butt and say, mom, you got to think about it from this perspective, which I always appreciate, and, and, and I love them to death. And I think my, my, my third would be my mom, uh, you know, um, uh, teenage mom, you know, uh, runs away in a domestic violence situation, comes to the U.S. from, from Puerto Rico, and, you know, somehow in the late 1960s um, was able to make a, um, a life for herself and her family and uh, overcome adversity, uh, you know, tremendous adversity, and, and did so with grace. Uh, never complained, hard work, grit, resilience, all of that. And, um, you know, she was obviously my role model. Um, and I hope, you know, someday I'll be able to, to say, you know, so others will say about me, you know, she did, she did all right, this one. Very nice. Ambassador, how about you? Role models? Wow. Um, I thought about this one, and I, I have a few, but um, I'll, I'll probably go a little further back uh, in history. And I would say Harriet Tubman. Um, I just remember reading about her when I was a kid um, and always been amazed by what this woman was able to do at the time when she did it. Um, her, her going back and freeing others and putting her own life at risk the fact that she was able to do it <laughs> um, with success um, at a time that we cannot even imagine what that was like. I mean, it's so, you know, the degree to which she had to do, the degree to which she, what she did at that time, what she accomplished to me is, is amazing. And I think what I think of um, people who can accomplish something like that at that time makes me say i can i can do what i can do in this time you know um and those are the type of robots i tend to have they're always going to be someone who was you know had to who faced extreme adversity and was able to accomplish a lot because to me that you know not really understanding the heaviness of what they had to deal with um not even being able to put it in perspective because it's such, you know, that the, the level in extreme situation, um, but just imagining it and seeing what has been accomplished to me is always, those are, those are the kind of role models I always have. Yeah, courage, it, it comes down to, right? It's so, it, um, so inspiring. Yeah. Justice Winslow. I certainly would uh, start with my mother. Uh, she is 96 and a half years old. She's still of sound mind. She still remembers things better than I do. Uh, she still, um, she's every bit my mother still. And uh, she's a very determined woman. In fact, I tell her, I said, I think because you're so determined and so stubborn, that's why you're still with us. Uh, because she is, she is determined and stubborn. And uh, she got her driver's license when she was 40. Um, you know, just things like that. And she, she grew up during a lot of times in, uh, in a family where uh, she didn't have a lot of role models and uh, she managed to raise my two brothers and I uh, as though she did. And uh, she's just an amazing woman who I have uh, long looked up to and always have wanted to make her proud by whatever it is that I do. Uh, beyond that, uh, more career-wise, she is the same person, however, that when I went decided to go to law school, she said to me, but what are you going to do? You're, you're going to waste your teaching degree. 
And I tried to explain to her that I thought I'd still be able to use it, even as a lawyer, which has come very true. But uh, beyond that, I would say all women, a lot of women, um, women who in history, you know, whether it be Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, all, all the Seneca Falls women, uh, women now even, whether it be Justice Ginsburg, may she rest in peace, or whether it be uh, even women that we see uh, nationally, whether it be in the media, whether it be celebrities, people that have had to uh, get over hurdles and be better than, than, than others in order to achieve what they've achieved. You know, they, they broke barriers for us. You know, those of us that are here today and those of us that are, you know, that are Albany Law School students now, you know, it's real easy to say, you know, you will still have barriers to break. You will still have barriers that you will need to have courage to break and things that you will have to step up and do. There'll be times where you'll be tested. But uh, if, you, if you can make it through Albany Law School, you'll be just fine. That's, I think, the message I would want to put out. Because I think that uh, we really, in those three years that we were there, we did have to go through a lot in order to get through. And uh, it really was a very strong and solid foundation uh, for, I think, every challenge that I've had to face, you know, between the values my family gave me and the education I got there. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's anything that I wouldn't be able to handle. Um, might take me a little more time than, than others, but I'm going to be able to handle it and get through it, and I'll be just fine on the other end. And they will, too. Love the confidence, but, it, but it's uh, well-earned. Um, so... In, in the obstacles, that the challenges that, that you faced, have any of them been based on, on some of the, the factors, race, gender, uh, ethnicity, um, sexual orientation? And, and if so, have you directly confronted those, like some of the heroes and, and role models we've talked about? Um, how did you address them when, when they came up? Or, or was it more sort of subtle? Um, how, how did that play, that your, your um, being a member of the LGBT community, how did that play out in your life? Most often, uh, the things I faced uh, like that were subtle. Many things were self-imposed, actually. Uh, many of the years when I was at the DA's office, I, I had a very secretive life, and I thought that, you know, that no one knew if I didn't tell them, which, you know, was kind of stupid and naive, but um, I was very secretive, you know. Uh, you know, we, we talk about uh, people getting on a partnership track and, you know, having children. You know, I had, I always had stepchildren. I had a family. I always had other commitments, but nobody at work knew about any of that because I chose not to tell them, not to share it with them because I was scared. You know, I was scared that they would judge me somehow or that it would affect, you know, my, my uh, ability to proceed through the office. And uh, that was foolish on my part. And when I said earlier, have more confidence, that's an area I wish I had a lot more confidence in when I was younger. And now I, you know, I've been quoted as saying, I don't give a hoot. <laughs> because I don't have to. <laughs> I'm in a position now where I, I, you know, I can wear everything on my sleeve and I'm fortunate that way, I'm lucky. Uh, but if I uh, could do it over again, I would certainly share more. And, uh, and I think that would have been good, not just for me, but for them too. You know, I think it would have been good for them to see and realize. Thank you. Ambassador, being a black woman, has that, has that presented obstacles to you in your career and how have you dealt with them if so? Yeah, um, yeah, I think I talked a little bit about it uh, uh, earlier about how, um, you know, sometimes you're put in a position where you just kind of have to do what you got to do. 
Um, and I think that's pretty much the way I've dealt with things. And because of that early experience, um, that's pretty much been the way I've continued to deal with those kind of issues, which is to essentially um, just kind of barrel through. Um, a lot of the, um, beyond that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the situations that I've dealt with have been much more on a systemic kind of racism issue level, cultural, uh, whether you're working at state department or other places in government or other places in outside government, you know, um, those are, that's a different type of discrimination than if someone just, you know, said something to you. Um, structural racism is, you have to deal with a system, which is a lot more, which is a, it's, it's a different kind of challenge. Um, a lot of the work that my organization does now is trying to deal not just only with, you know, um, helping to provide a space for women of color to not only challenge themselves, but to have a space for them to um, talk about some of the challenges that they face, in a, like I said, in a safe space, but also being able to challenge the institution and to challenge them to be much better at what they are doing and to not give lip service to change, but to actually make make change and see them making a difference. Um, but it's really about, and I always encourage, you know, other women of color to just, like I said before, just to, just to keep doing what you have to do and understand that the time that you spend worrying about that or thinking about that is time that you need to be doing the job and understand that those things you're dealing with are not really coming from you, it's coming from somebody else. And that you can't really take on and shoulder other people's racism and discrimination. Let that go back to where it belongs and you do what you have to do. Thank you. Ms. Melendez, first Latina partner, you, you surely face some, some obstacles. Um, you know, interestingly, I, I don't, at least as far as I know, I, there weren't obstacles inside the firm for me. I, you know, I, I went through the normal track. I was, you know, considered and elected on a normal schedule, if you will. So I am not aware of any um, instances uh, inside the firm where I was, you know, um, discriminated against because of my gender or racial and ethnic background. Um, but you know, I have countless examples of instances outside, whether it be in the courthouse, whether it be um, opposing counsel, whether it be, uh, you know, taxi cab drivers. Uh, you know, I, I, I had a case in Ohio uh, a couple years ago uh, in Cleveland and major law firm on the other side, big giant matter, millions at stake. And we go in to take a deposition of the uh, president of the company and I identified myself and I happened to be accompanied by one of my junior male uh, associates and uh, identified myself and, and the, um, the people at the firm looked at me and they're like, oh, are you the court reporter? And I said, no. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I was uh, asked if I were the court reporter or the receptionist or the secretary or uh, something along those lines. Um, uh, misogyny and, and inappropriate uh, conduct and um, words spoken by, uh, by others uh, in the profession, in a professional environment. I'm taking a deposition and I'm asking questions and the witness, uh, senior male, 
just makes entirely inappropriate comments on the record. Uh, and, you know, it's the same, it happens to be the same case I'm thinking of. The male associate is sitting next to me and he's about to jump over the table and just punch the guy in the face. And I, you know, no, restrain, restrain, restrain. We, we, we um, you know, got what we needed and uh, flew back home and, you know, we're, ab we're able to, uh, because of the uh, information that we uh, got from this guy, we're able to move for summary judgment, case dismissed, and we win, right? Um, and and the, the junior associate asked me uh, on, uh, at the bar at the airport on the way back, because it was one of those encounters where you just want to take a shower immediately. Um, he asked me, Maria, why, why, how were you able to maintain your composure and not just, you know, call this guy out for the sexist, racist pig that he was? Um, and I explained to him, in, unfortunately, even though it's, you know, at the time it was a few years ago, but it still happens today, uh, women and people of diverse backgrounds will have these encounters. That's just the society in which we live. And as a professional, you can, you have a couple of choices, right? You can, um, in the moment, uh, you know, respond in kind or, or, you know, get upset and angry and yell and scream. And it'll feel good for those 10 seconds or 30 seconds that it took you to get the words out. Um, but at the end of the day, you're left with what? I'm sitting in a deposition, you're sitting in a court, you know, at a hearing, at a trial, or you're, you know, uh, preparing a witness for testimony. What are you going to accomplish, right? Um, and, you, and, and you are then going to have to just come back and continue at some point, whether it be in that same day or come back at a later rescheduled time. Uh, or you can, you know, take a deep breath, use the opportunity to um, solicit from this person who clearly doesn't think that, you know, you know what you're doing or clearly thinks that because he's a, a male and he's a senior executive somewhere that he knows better than you, little lady, that kind of a thing. You use that moment to extract what you need and then you go back and you file your motion and you win the case. And then you, then you smile and you have a big drink and you know, all is good. Um, obviously there will be things where the line is crossed to the point where you can't just, you know, be professional and smile and grin and bear it, which is basically what I'm advising you to do. Uh, and in those moments, if and when they happen, then you have to stand up for yourself, obviously. I thankfully have never been in a, a situation like that, that was so extreme. For the most part, you know, you, you maintain your professionalism uh, and, and you get done what you need to get done and you move on. Um, and hopefully, you know, hopefully within our lifetime, my lifetime, uh, we will be at a place where these things don't happen. But uh, sadly, you know, it's, it's still, we still have a ways to go. Yeah, so, so uh, your answer about sort of figuring out when to speak up and what, when to figure out a way around or through those, those things, um, there's, there's a question in, in the Q&A uh, asking um, about some of what men can get away with versus what women can get away with. The question is the following, often confident and powerful women are criticized for not being nice enough while men demonstrating the same behavior are accepted as behaving appropriately for a man. Um, do you see that? Have you seen that? Do you agree with that, that there are different rules based on, on gender? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in, uh, and you see this, you know, the literature spells it out. Uh, talking to colleagues in the profession of the years, I hear similar stories. Uh, talking to people outside the firm, I hear similar stories. Um, 
and it, and it shows up often in evaluations, performance evaluations. You will see the language used to describe the performance of a female lawyer versus the performance of a male lawyer is, is very different. Um, and oftentimes it's, uh, it's, it's tilted in favor of um, um, skill sets and attributes uh, in a man that are exactly the same as the skill sets and attributes in the female, but they're just described very differently. And that descriptive language that's used can be interpreted as negative for one, usually the female, and positive for the other. Um, so yeah, we, that's an area where we, we, we have to be cognizant of that. And that's why there's a lot of unconscious bias, implicit bias trainings that are happening across, you know, academia, law firms, companies, because it is in fact, you know, it's a scientific uh, problem and, and uh, we, we have to mitigate and interrupt that. And, and in order to do that, we have to acknowledge and be aware of the fact that we all carry it. Uh, we all do it to some degree or another. And um, the key is to, to be cognizant of it so that we are much more thoughtful and much more objective when we're filling out and, and you know, evaluating someone's uh, skills and performance. Thank you. Ambassador, have you seen that as well? You, you worked in, in a male-dominated field, even in the Obama administration. Do, do you, uh, have you seen the difference in, in what men and women can get away with and, and when they speak and how they speak? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just part of our culture. I think it's in many places. Um, I think that, um, you know, I mean, I think, for example, when the, the, the criticism for, um, for Kamala Harris was she's ambitious, uh, which I never quite understood that one. <laughs> I think a lot of people are ambitious. <laughs> but I'm not sure why. I mean, I think that's, that's theoretically a, a positive trait for everybody, I think, in, in, our, in our culture of capitalism where you work hard to get what you want um so it's uh, you know as 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 maria said it's it's used it's, it's it's a tool um that is used for a purpose a lot of times sometimes it's obviously unconscious where people do a, you know and they don't realize that we're in a culture where that's the way things are often done and it's unconscious because it's in our culture and then sometimes it's done on purpose um, to try to make somebody um, seem unattractive, you know, like, oh, if she has those kind of qualities that are identified by, you know, with a male quality, and therefore, she's less of a woman, and, you know, and then, then people get into all, and then people get into all their own heads about what that all means, and they know that that's going to happen, and that's why they say it, um, because they think, they know that culturally, we have a, we have a cultural response to things, that's automatic and subconscious because we've been, it's been ingrained in us all of our lives. Um, so it's done on purpose for that reason. Um, but yeah, it happens. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a lot of places where, um, you know, I think people are slowly becoming more aware of it, I hope, but I think we have a long way to go on that one. Judge, Judge Winslow, you've seen it from the bench as a, a trial uh, judge and, and then as an appellate judge. Uh, do men and women get away with different things? Uh, or is the way that they approach things, does it sometimes uh, make a difference in advocacy or as witnesses in, in any respect? Well, certainly not in my courtroom when I was on the trial bench, because <laughs> I would have called either side on it quickly and did. 
the times when I saw it really was more when I was a prosecutor. And I remember uh, when I first started handling felony cases, one of the first county court judges that I met, I went to a conference in his chambers and the very first words out of his mouth were, I hope you're not going to be a bitch like that. And then he named, you know, the top woman at that time in the DA's office. And I, I, I was shocked, A, that he talked that way and B, that, you know, he would disparage somebody who was highly regarded in our office. And, and it just didn't make sense to me because I thought, you know, as, as a prosecutor, we had a role and our role was to be somewhat aggressive, you know, in putting forth our case and in putting forth why we wanted to, you know, see happen, whatever the offer was we were making. And, you know, as long as we knew our facts and could stand behind our position, you know, I didn't, I didn't see what the issue was. I thought whether I'm male or female, isn't going to change that, you know, it's just the facts, ma'am. And, and uh, so that was my first eye-opening experience uh, to, uh, you know, a different standard. My biggest fear was really when it came to being in front of a jury, I was always worried, and this kind of goes back to one of the earlier questions. I was worried that my LGBTQ status would somehow affect jurors and being able to, to listen to me or to, uh, um, you know, not be able to close down and, and not hear what I had to say or listen to my arguments and uh, be able to keep an open mind and, and hopefully accept them. Uh, but I, I don't have any knowledge that that ever occurred. In fact, one of the things that I was told by defense attorneys pretty regularly was that they didn't like going against me because I was so reasonable and I came across as reasonable, you know, in front of a jury. And jurors, when I spoke to them after the fact, you know, it, sometimes it was something crazy. I can remember this one case it was a multiple homicide case. And we were up at the bench talking to the judge. And there were four attorneys up there. And uh, one of the clerks uh, dropped her pen down behind us. And, and as it was time to leave, I had noted it. And I bent down and picked it up and just put it on her, on her desk and walked away. After the case was over, one of the jurors came up to me and said, I knew I liked you when I saw you pick up that pen for that clerk. You know, I had, not that she didn't you know, listen to the facts and listen to the law and do what she was supposed to do. But it's certainly, you know, they notice what everything that you do and it kind of colored her view of what kind of a person I was separate and apart from what she was seeing there in the courtroom. And uh, so that was kind of how I handled it. I just, you know, I was my true self and I tried to be reasonable, you know, and I think that that put me in good stead, both with judges, lawyers, you know, all the jurors, everyone who has worked in the court system. Hopefully still does till this day. I'm sure it does. <laughs> So I'm, I'm cognizant of time and we're, we're starting to get to the end. So I, I, I'm going to ask a final question of each of you. Um, we are living in some very trying times. Uh, we are in the midst of a racial reckoning, a very difficult election, pandemic. We've lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We don't know what will happen with that. What, if anything, gives you hope about the future about the profession and about where we're going uh, as we look ahead. Did you want me to start? I want you to start. So you, you're in my big square. So I'm, I'm just looking yeah, at you. Everybody, I don't know if everyone has the same view. Everybody's the same size. Okay. Um, you know, what gives me hope is that I think that um, even though this is such a tough year with all that you've just mentioned, all that's going on, all the struggles that we have and all the hurdles we have to get over, you know, and, and this I started to see and, and develop an opinion about when I saw the school shootings. The youth of today 
you know, they're, they're on top of it. You know, they are, they're engaged so much more than I ever was when I was that age. And I think the fact that I think that young people are more engaged uh, today than, than in the past, I think will um, go a long way towards affecting change, like real change, not just lip service, but real change. And that's what I, that's where I hang my hopes. Nice. Ambassador. Um, well, I guess very similar. I mean, there's, um, you know, you know, seeing the, seeing the youth protests are really important. Seeing the, the rainbow of people who are out there you know, I, I feel, for example, with the, with, you know, what's happened after George Floyd, that it's no longer just, you know, African-Americans who are out there pounding the pavement saying this is wrong, that seeing that there are more people who are involved, that there's more diversity and people wearing the Black Lives Matter shirt and that they get it. You know, I get a sense that it's not just lip service for everyone, that some people are starting to understand that there, there really is a problem in America, um, and I think the willingness to question, you know, no longer saying that um, everything that we do is the best and everything we do is great and everything we do is so much better. Just a question, well, maybe everything isn't so great and maybe we need to learn and maybe there's things we can learn from other countries and maybe there's more voices that need to be engaged, we can be better at that. I think the willingness to question who we are and what we are, I think is is really important for our own, our own um, survival. Thank you. Ms. Melendez. Yeah, I'm gonna cheat and say ditto. <laughs> uh, the young people clearly, I, I think are, are, you know, the bright spot in our uh, country right now. Uh, having a global mindset, I think is also incredibly important. For the reasons that um, Ambassador Jenkins said, I think we have um, the opportunity now because of this movement and because of how engaged people are to open up our minds and, and be willing to accept and, and at least seek out different perspectives than our own. And I think that's, um, to me, something that's very hopeful. And I will say that the three of you give me hope having you all in leadership positions and reaching back and and on your broad shoulders, we will we will go forward. Uh, and I thank you so much uh, for your time. I feel inspired by this. I think we've all learned a lot. Don't know whether you're reading the the chat, but there's a lot of messages coming in for you. So please do do look at them. Uh, some of your classmates are reaching out, and I. I Everyone in the audience, thank you for being here and being with us. I, I know there were some questions that were still uh, not answered. Um, I am sure that if you email our panelists, I'd be happy to, to continue the conversation. Uh, thank you for being here. And I don't know if I'm supposed to turn this over to someone else for uh, final uh, words. Dean Fitzpatrick. Uh, I would just say a big thank you to our panelists for this wonderful program and thank you, Dean Willett, for a tremendous job and um, asking all these great questions. We really are inspired. Have a good evening, everyone. Good night, everybody. Good night.